All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. As you turn there, I want you to consider this. That at the very core of our faith, at the center of Christianity, is a belief in something that, to the purely logical mind, is unbelievable. If you've been around Christianity for a long time, you may take for granted that some of the things we believe are simply unbelievable to the logical mind. What am I talking about? Well, if you've looked at the passage or if you've noticed the theme of the songs and the passages we've um, sung and read this morning, you may recognize we're talking about the resurrection. And not necessarily the resurrection of Christ, but the fact that every person who has ever lived one day will be raised from the dead. Like I said, it's something that we believe and acknowledge and talk about, but it's wild, isn't it? And to the logical mind, it's simply unbelievable that there will come a day when all will come back to life. And yet, as wild as it may seem to the purely logical mind, I confess, and I think you would confess with me, I believe with all of my heart in the resurrection of the dead. And I know that most of you would confess it with me because we do it regularly when we recite the Apostles' Creed, don't we? Those last two lines are not just a tag, they're very important. We believe in the resurrection of the body and of life everlasting. We believe this to be true. And it's not just part of what we believe. The resurrection of the dead is at the very heart and the core of what we believe to the extent that if we take that away, if there is no resurrection, then there's not much left. But what is it? I've alluded to it. When we talk about a future resurrection, we're acknowledging that we believe there is a day when every person will be brought back from the dead. And for those who believe in Christ... It's a resurrection unto life. On that day, we'll be given restored, glorified bodies. We'll live in perfect peace forever. You won't struggle with sin anymore, and there won't be any suffering. No grief, no pain, no loss, no sickness. Oh, in church, no more death. We will live in eternal joy. All who are in Christ will be raised to this life, but not all are raised to this life. Some are raised to eternal punishment. Of course, the reason we believe that resurrection is possible at all is because Christ rose from the dead. It's his resurrection that secures our resurrection. Most of you probably know there's an entire chapter, we started with it this morning, that deals with this line of reasoning that there must be resurrection, right? And that if there is no resurrection, then this doesn't make much sense at all. For starters, if there is no resurrection, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, it'd be a, a good passage for you to read this afternoon in addition to the message today. He argues in that chapter that if there is no resurrection, then, then all those who have died, they're gone. And if there is no resurrection, the same will be true of us. We'll die and be gone, never to be heard or seen again. 
And of course, there is, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then there is no forgiveness of sins. And our gathering together and our singing makes little sense at all. Paul's really throwing that chapter, building this argument of implications of denying the reality of the resurrection. And maybe you've read that chapter. Maybe you know that chapter. You could quote parts of it. wonder if you've ever asked the question, why, Paul? Why are you arguing for the resurrection? Were there those arguing against it? Well, the answer is yes, and that lays the foundation for where we're headed this morning. That during the time of Paul and during the time of Christ, there were a sect of people who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I'm not talking about pagan nations. I'm not talking about those who did not claim to be followers of God. I'm talking about God-following people, people of Israel who lived according to the law of Moses, and yet who rejected a belief in the afterlife. Which, just thinking about that, God followers committed to keeping the law with no future judgment and no future reward, what's the point? Well, for them, it was all about the nation. See, they did believe that they were the people of God. They believed they were a special nation, that God had promised to bless them, and so that living God's way and keeping God's law would lead to prosperity and to blessing in this life and so that's the way they lived, to honor God, knowing that as they honored him, he would bless them. And it's this group of people that are at the center of our story in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If you've been with us, you know we're in this series where the outline of our messages kind of seem the same every week, don't they? There's a question, there's a response. It's the week before the death of Christ, it's Tuesday or Wednesday, Jesus is in the temple court, and there's been this wave of people coming, questioning him, not bringing honest questions, but trying to trip him up, trying to make him say something foolish, trying to make him look bad in front of the crowds, hoping that the crowds will turn against him. This morning, those who bring the questions are the Sadducees, a group of Jews who, among other distinctives, don't believe in a resurrection. Their goal is to trip up Jesus, to back him into a corner. And of course, we will hear Jesus respond as he proves, based on scriptures, a future resurrection. That's a big part of our text this morning, and we could only look at that. But as I spent time with this text this week, I, I feel like there's a, another aspect of this text that is very, very important for us to consider. Not only did the Sadducees not believe in resurrection, and Jesus responds to convince them of resurrection, but Jesus also points out some underlying problems that led them to this error. This is why we have a really long title on, our, on the message this morning. Not sure it's going to fit on the space on the website. That's my problem, not yours. Um, a series of errors. The first error, the primary error, is this rejection of the resurrection. But Jesus points out that there were other errors, there were root causes that led them to this more significant error. So we're going to hear Jesus respond, and we'll hear what he says about the resurrection, and I hope that this morning you will find chance to rejoice over our future hope. But I also want us to consider, what was it that led them to that denial? And could it be 
that though we are not at risk of denying the resurrection, we may have the same root problems that could lead us to other denials. So that's where we're headed. Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 27. So I hope you have your Bibles open and you'll follow along as I read. The Sadducees came to Jesus, those who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Here's a situation. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second brother took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third brother likewise. The seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And they asked a question. In the resurrection, when all of them rise, the brothers and the wife, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, you have not read in the book of Moses, in the the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You are quite wrong. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, which means it was true when it's written, and it's true today. It's good for us. Ask that God, through his spirit, would add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. So we're in this section, feels familiar, these series of people coming to Jesus one after another, and they keep showing up trying to discredit him. They want to make him look foolish. They want to turn the crowds against him. Back in chapter 11, verse 27, we saw the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. They were part of that first wave. The second wave brought the Herodians and the Pharisees, and now the Sadducees. And we won't take time to fully unpack everything we know about them, but let me just give you a few things to consider. One, they were bound together by religious doctrine, but they were not primarily a religious group. Their aim, their focus was mainly political. But they were bound together by these things they believed, or rather things they did not believe. Some things they didn't believe. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. And most notably, what we'll consider this morning is they did not believe in a resurrection. And when we hear that, we may think, wow, they're, they're a really liberal group because they're denying all the things that the more conservatives would, would hang on to. When in fact, they would argue, we're the conservatives. Here's why. They only believed in the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible, those were their scriptures. They did not believe in the inspiration of the prophets. They did not believe in the inspiration of the wisdom literature. They would say, we're the conservatives. 
Because we believe in the Torah, and the Torah doesn't say anything about angels, and the Torah doesn't say anything about demons, and the Torah doesn't say anything about the afterlife. That's their reading, okay? They see themselves as more pure, more right. So they come to Jesus, and this is their angle. Do they think they're going to convince Jesus that there is no resurrection? No, surely not. But here's what they know. Most of the people following Jesus do believe in a resurrection. So if we can get Jesus to stumble, to make himself look foolish, perhaps the crowds will turn against him. Perhaps we can create a situation in which they rebel. So here's what they do. They don't come right out and ask Jesus to defend the resurrection. Instead, they give him this scenario. A scenario that they think will make the afterlife seem wildly inconsistent with the law of Moses. So we look at verse 18, 19. They asked him a question saying, and they believe this, okay? They believe in the law. They believe in the writings of Moses. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they're stating what's true from the law of Moses. If you want to read it, Add this to your reading list, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. God gives us provision that honestly may seem odd to us. You've probably never been concerned about who your wife or who your brother married because you didn't think that one day you would marry her. This was more of a consideration for them. But why? And why is it not still binding for us today? Well, remember, they're a nation, and God was working through this nation, generation after generation, leading towards something, right? So God made this provision in the law to preserve the family line, to protect inheritances. So if a man dies and there's no one to take his inheritance, then someone in the family should come along and fulfill that line. Seems odd to us, but... It was an important protection and preservation for the nation of Israel. And this is something that everyone was familiar with. So when they brought this up, people weren't like, what are they they talking about? No, this was well known. They lay out the law of Moses, and then this is where they get a little more creative, and they, they offer this scenario. Seven brothers. The first one has a wife. He dies, no children. The second brother comes, takes a wife, dies, no children. Repeated a third time and a fourth, all the way to the seventh. Last of all, the woman dies, probably exhausted, right? (laughs) Because she's been married seven times, and these men have worked hard to no avail. It's a crazy scenario, a hypothetical story, but theoretically could happen. And it's based on this scenario that they ask the question, Okay, Jesus, in the resurrection, seven guys, one lady, who will she be married to? And on the surface, it's not a bad question. And they could be seen as honest questioners, right? Jesus, help us understand. How does marriage work in eternity? Who's going to be married to who? If we just look at that, it seems like a good and important question. But, of course, we know these are not honest learners. And they don't really care to figure out marriage. 
They're pushing back against resurrection. They want to prove the idea of resurrection is absurd. It doesn't work. The way they ask their question, you could wonder if there's tongue-in-cheek, maybe a wink at one another. Okay, Jesus, in the resurrection, (laughs) wink, wink, right? When they, quote-unquote, rise again, right? They don't believe this. They're trying to set him up. Doesn't a belief in the resurrection lead to all kinds of confusion? Well, Jesus is going to answer them and show them from the Scriptures that this does not cause confusion at all. But first, he points out the root problem that they have. This is what I want us to consider for just a few minutes. What led the Sadducees to this type of error? Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Notice he tells them they're wrong, right? We're going to just assume you're wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. We've seen this over and over. They should know better. Remember the word I made up last week? Jesus cannot be gotcha'd, right? They come trying to trap him. They try to trick him, and he's not going to be put into a corner. He responds, and he says something that would cut deep. Remember the Sadducees, these are highly educated men, known for knowing the Scriptures, knowing for knowing the Torah. And yet Jesus comes to them, this Galilean, and tells them, you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. It would have been highly offensive to them. And perhaps it would be to you if someone said the same. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. The way you're thinking, the way you're living is wrong. So much comes down to this, doesn't it? That either we don't know what God has said, or we don't believe that he's able to do what he has said. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You don't know what God said, or you don't believe that God is able to do what he said. And Isn't that the root cause of so much doubt and unbelief? Either we don't know what he said, or we don't believe that he can do what he said. It's the cause of so much division. We simply don't understand, we don't know, or we don't believe. So many people don't come to faith for this reason. They don't really know what God has said, or they simply don't believe that he's able to do what he has said. It's the underlying cause for many who struggle with faith and for many who leave the faith. So why don't we understand and why don't we believe? On the level of understanding, perhaps it's because of poor teaching. Perhaps we've not been teaching the Word of God. We've taught around it. We've sprinkled it in. But perhaps there are thousands, if not millions, who hold a Bible but don't know what it says. And so when life gets hard, they have questions that they can't answer. Why? Because they don't know the Scriptures. And I don't want to just pick on people outside. I want to just talk about us, and we have plenty to talk about, don't we? How often we allow ourselves to be unfamiliar with what God has said. 
And perhaps at times we come to the Bible not wanting to know honestly what he said, but coming with what we hope is true and trying to find it. I think we see some of that in the Sadducees. The reality is we can be around the Scriptures but not know them. And by extension, we can know of God but not understand his character or his ability. Sometimes life leaves us in hard places. Places where we ask questions of God. We question his goodness when things get hard. Why? Perhaps it's because we don't know what the Bible says about his goodness. Or perhaps we don't believe that he's able to show his goodness to us. Either we have not rightly understood or we're not willing to believe what they say. And isn't this why we encourage one another to read? Isn't this why the bulk of our service is around the teaching of the word? We must know what God has said. If we're going to be God's people and live God's way and trust God, we must know what he said. If not, we are vulnerable to asking all kinds of wrong questions and having all kinds of doubts. Along with that, so much of our unbelief comes down to the fact that we don't believe the power of God. I wonder if you've been guilty of this, maybe even recently. We could all think of times, probably, when we didn't really believe that God was going to use our pain for his glory. We don't believe that God can change our situation. Surely he can help them. He can heal that person. He can change their wrong desires, but mine seems too far gone. What is that? It's a doubt in the power of God, isn't it? We don't believe that God is really in control when things go south. It all comes down to this, a lack of belief in his power. On one hand, we confess unashamedly, Jesus spoke the world into existence. Isn't that what Colossians says? He's the creator of all things and he holds all things together. And we say, I believe that's true. But I don't think he can provide for me next week if my paycheck doesn't come in. Do you see the disconnect? We don't believe in the power of God. As I was thinking about this, I, I remember Job. Remember that latter part of Job when he really starts struggling? Wondering what God is doing in his life? Do you remember what God responds with? He responds with two chapters full of questions. Let me just give you a sampling. It's kind of throughout 38 and 39. God asks Job, where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? God asks, and caused the dawn to know its place. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? For the sake of you at home, I better pick this up. Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of heavens? 
when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? It's two chapters of these questions. You get the point, don't you? Where were you? Where were you, Job? God's saying, no, no, I'm the one with the power. So often we are guilty of the same thing. We don't understand or believe the power of God. Isn't that true? We don't trust him with our situation. We don't trust him with our marriage. We don't trust him with our job. We don't trust him with our kids. We don't trust him with our finances. The list goes on and on. So much of our unbelief and our doubts come down to this. We neither know the scriptures, we don't know what God said, or we don't believe in his power. Jesus says the root of the problem for the Sadducees is this. You don't understand the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he starts to explain to them what the Bible says about the question they asked. So we break it down into two parts. First, he talks about marriage and eternity, and then he talks more specifically about what the Bible says about the afterlife. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I like here that Jesus affirms the resurrection. You know, remember they had kind of quoted, when they rise, right? Jesus says, no, no, they will rise. When they rise from the dead, they will rise. At that point, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He's not speaking hypothetically. He's affirming what's true. They will rise, and yet there won't be confusion about who marries who because marriage is going to be different than you think. He's pointing out their lack of understanding. They've underestimated the wisdom and power of God. So what have they misunderstood? They've misunderstood the nature of marriage. See, they've assumed that marriage is something that will continue into eternity. But Jesus says that's not the case. And if you're married, don't say amen at this point, okay? I read this first to Michelle last night, and she said, I'm counting the days. No, I'm kidding. She said it, but she was joking, I think. Don't put this verse over your bed. But what Jesus is teaching here is that marriage is not forever. Marriage is a gift for this life, but it doesn't continue into eternity. And I know that may seem shocking, perhaps, that's what the verse says. They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And Jesus is telling the Sadducees, this whole scenario you brought to us, this isn't really a dilemma. There's not a question of whom this woman will be married to in eternity because marriage is something for this life, not for eternity. And he explains, when we rise again, we'll be different. He says, in respect to marriage, we're going to be like angels. Now, I don't think we should read this saying that we're going to be like angels in every way. I think it's actually incorrect to say when we die, we become angels. That's not what it says. But in this respect, he says, we will be like angels. What does that mean? For one, we're not going to need to reproduce. We're not going to be joined in marriage for the purpose of procreation. And what Jesus is helping the Sadducees understand is that they've misunderstood the nature. Their situation doesn't pose a problem, but maybe for you it does. Maybe the words of Jesus here do pose a problem for you. Maybe for you, this seems like really bad news that you weren't expecting to get this morning. Maybe you love your spouse. I hope you do. 
And maybe there's a part of you that seems disappointed that your marriage isn't eternal. Or maybe you've lost a spouse. And for you, the great hope is this, that one day we will be back together. Just mention a couple things. First, I think the teaching of Jesus here is clear. Let's remember this. The scriptures teach us that in the life to come, there won't be tears, there won't be mourning, there won't be crying, there won't be pain. On the other extreme, we're told that there will be eternal joy and pleasures forevermore. So while I agree that it would be nice to assume or to believe an eternal state of marriage. We also remember that God does all things well and that his plan for eternity is better than anything that we could think or imagine. So while Jesus says here that marriage isn't forever, we can trust that we won't be disappointed with his plan for our relationships. I don't think this truth should diminish our joy or our anticipation. I don't think it should create a a sense of loss. If anything, it should create rejoicing, knowing that as much as I love the relationships he's given me today, he has even more better planned for all of us. In a sense, it's a reminder of how quickly we can distort the truth when we base our theology on our experience. Right? Because if we're writing it, we write the way that seems best for us. Thankfully, God knows better than we do. It's a reminder we must know the scriptures. We must believe what we believe because it's what God has said. Which brings us back to the passage. These men have come to Jesus and they think that they're going to stump him. But he says, you don't understand. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. And he continues to prove his point in verse 26. First, he makes it clear that their question doesn't make sense because they don't understand the nature of marriage. And then he turns his attention to the real issue the real issue they wanted to discuss, the resurrection. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Which I just love that phrasing. Isn't that passage about the bush? Because that's the way we talk, isn't it? It's nice to know Jesus talked the same way. Remember that passage about the bush? How God spoke to them saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He starts with a little jab, doesn't he? The Sadducees, these men of the book. And yet Jesus says to them, have you not read? It's a little holy mocking, I think. Haven't you read your Bibles? And notice where he goes. He goes to the Torah. Right? Psalms, Proverbs, the prophets have a lot to say about the afterlife. We read several of them earlier in the service. Let me just remind you of one. Job 19. I didn't read it well earlier, so I'm going to do it right now. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. We can go to the prophets, we can go to the Psalms and, and read over and over of the afterlife, but, but their argument was the real scriptures, according to them. The Torah doesn't say anything about this. We don't believe in the resurrection because 
our scriptures don't teach it. And yet Jesus takes them to the story of the bush, the story of Moses, where God speaks to him. And he recounts these words from Exodus chapter 3, where God speaks to Moses, and or, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's significant about that? Well, it's significant because Moses lived centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet God speaks to them in the present, about them, rather, in the present tense. I am their God. If you ever think we make too big, deal, too big of a deal about words and the tense of words and breaking down the words of Scripture, recognize the argument Jesus is making based on the tense used here. Right? God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point that Jesus is making this argument is that the way God speaks proves that they still live. He's not the God of the dead. He's God of the living. And when God says, I am the God of Abraham, he is speaking truthfully. He takes them to the Torah and says, this is true. There is more beyond the grave. He speaks specifically about Abraham still living. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11? We're told about the faith of Abraham. This is a small rabbit trail, but I just wanted you to remember what Hebrews says about Abraham. Recognize that Abraham believed in life after death. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The writer of Hebrews says this is what Abraham believed, and church, this is what we believe. That there is more, there is life after death, there is resurrection, and we are looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. Here's what Jesus wants the Sadducees to recognize. They've not understood the scriptures. They haven't understood the power of God. Does it make sense that the dead can be raised? Does it? Based on our logic? No. Based on God's ability? 100%. He tells the Sadducees, based on what they believe, they're quite wrong. Because there is life after death. There is resurrection. And let's go back to the context and remember that just a mere days from this, Jesus would show them once and for all what resurrection looks like. Because on Friday of this week, he would be killed, but on Sunday, he would rise again. It's what we call the gospel. Jesus rose again, and now all who believe in him have the hope of being raised to eternal life. Paul says it this way, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Because he rose, all those who believe in him will rise. So we go back to where we started. We believe in the resurrection. Now let's go back to that other topic for just a moment. While we believe that people will be raised, we could fall into the same errors they did in other respects. We could be guilty of not believing the scriptures. One area in which many people don't believe is this idea that not all will be raised to life, but that some will be raised to eternal death, right? And yet this is what the scriptures say. The words of Jesus in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here we're reminded the words of Christ and the reality of resurrection. The question is, do we believe what Jesus has said? Passages like this should be a great hope and also a great warning. It's hope because for those of us who believe, we do have eternity with God, joy to look forward to. The sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed also a great warning that for all those who reject Jesus, death is not simply the end. There will be a resurrection for them too unto eternal judgment. If you're hearing this and that's unsettling to you, the good news is, is that you still have an opportunity to believe. The good news is as long as life remains, you can repent and trust Christ and become an inheritor of eternal life. And church, this is the message that we must proclaim. All people will be raised from the dead. Some to eternal life and some to eternal torment. The resurrection is real. Eternal life is real. Eternal punishment is real. And we should want to help as many people as possible experience the hope of resurrection. This passage about resurrection it's also a passage about the importance of knowing the scriptures and about trusting in the power of God. And as we close, let's just consider that we don't want to be like the Sadducees. To use the old joke, they were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Their theology was based on their own expectations instead of the truth of scripture. And what they believed was based on what they thought was possible and not on the power of God. So I want to leave you this morning with some encouragement. Let's be a people who believe the Bible. 
regardless of how we feel or what we want to be true, let's commit to believing what it says. What it says about our sin, about our need, about other people, about our responsibilities, about our relationships, about our money, about forgiveness, about our work, about everything. Let's be a people who know the scriptures and believe the scriptures. And know that the only way we can keep this commitment is by being committed to actually being in the scriptures, right? We must be faithful. And even as we're faithful, inevitably, life will bring things that seem impossible. There will be times when the promises of God seem unbelievable. And this is where we remember God's ability and his power. We must know the scriptures, know what God has said, and believe that his promises are true, that he is able to do what he has said. That with him all things are possible. Healing is possible. Restoration is possible. Faith is possible. Forgiveness is possible. Even resurrection is possible. We believe in the resurrection. And we avoid error when we commit ourselves to these things. Knowing the scriptures and believing in the power of God. I was struggling to know where to tie it up, where to end. And then I remembered the way Paul ends his chapter on resurrection. This is what he says. This is where he leaves the Corinthians after reminding them of the hope of the resurrection. And we'll end here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. God, each week we gather in this room and we talk about things that to the watching world may seem unbelievable. And yet, we believe they're true and we would not want to live with them not being true. We believe that death is not the end, but death is the entrance to eternal life and eternal joy for those who believe. And so we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And I pray that this hope would change the way we live tomorrow. That it would change the way we look at our circumstances. I pray that we would be a people committed to the scriptures, to knowing the word, believing the word. That we would be a people who recognize your power. God, if there are those among us who are doubting your word or your ability... God, I pray that you would use our time this morning to encourage them in their faith. God, we also acknowledge this morning that resurrection is for all, yet resurrection for all is not unto eternal life, but resurrection for some is resurrection unto eternal torment. God, I pray that if there's any among us who do not have the hope of eternal life, that they would see their need this morning and desire to repent and to believe. And for those of us who believe, I pray that this reminder of eternity apart from Christ would be the encouragement we need to speak, and to proclaim, and to share the good news of the hope of Jesus Christ. God, we're your people. Would you help us to know you and to trust you?
ask these things in Jesus' name.